Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, from our history series, covers the incredible story of a man named Frank Finkel, who waited 44 years to claim he was the lone survivor of the five companies led into action by Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. A remarkable statement in light of the fact that 70 men had stepped forward with the same claim before him, and all of them were found to be false. You can catch all of our episodes at our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com or at all of the podcast sites like iTunes and Stitcher or at Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 1001heroes. When we announced that we were bringing a story on the Battle of the Little Bighorn, things heated up pretty fast as there are many who sympathize with the plight of the American Indian as they fought the spread of European civilization across the wild and uncivilized North American continent. There are also those who claim that the American Indian tribes had been at war with each other since the dawn of time, that they tortured, scalped, and kept slaves from opposing tribes, that war was the staple of their culture, and that they, both men and women, had perfected means of torture that left outsiders believing that they were not human beings, but savages. All true. Many in the U.S. cavalry had learned through hard experience that the American Indian was among the world's best at fighting a guerrilla-style war, and their field generals were every bit as good as ours, and sometimes better. This story will give you lots of details about the Battle of the Bighorn that you haven't heard before. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The Battle of the Little Bighorn, known to the Lakota as the Battle of the Greasy Grass and commonly referred to as Custer's Last Stand, was an armed engagement between combined forces of the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes against the 7th Cavalry Regiment of the United States Army. The battle, which occurred June 25th and 26th, 1876, near the Little Bighorn River in eastern Montana Territory, was the most prominent action of the Great Sioux War of 1876. It was an overwhelming victory for the Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho, led by several major war leaders, including Crazy Horse and Chief Gall, inspired by the visions of Sitting Bull. The U.S. 7th Cavalry, including the Custer Battalion, a force of 700 men led by George Armstrong Custer, suffered a severe defeat. Five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies, including the company to which Finkel was attached, C Company, under the command of Tom Custer, were totally annihilated. Custer was killed, as were two of his brothers, a nephew and a brother-in-law. In the aftermath, Custer was heavily criticized for ignoring warnings from his scouts that the Indian force they were facing was much larger than the combined total of his entire 7th Cavalry, which he split into three pincers around Majors Reno and Benteen in an effort to surround and confuse the Indians a method he had used successfully in a prior and highly controversial attack against a much smaller Indian encampment on the Washita River eight years prior, during which innocent women and children were gunned down and captured for future use as human shields, a tactic which Custer possibly should have been disciplined for. In the hours before the Battle of the Bighorn erupted, he was quoted to have said he would look for a squaw wearing the most elk's teeth on her necklace to use as a human shield, knowing that Indians would not fire on his men if there was any danger of hitting one of their own family. His actions at the Little Bighorn were brazenly carried out with the notion that if he attacked the village with women and children in it by surprise, the Indians would run to protect their families before they could stand and fight. Another mistake. They had seen his troops coming, and they were waiting. 
For his daring actions in the field during the Civil War, George Armstrong Custer was nicknamed the Boy General and had become the darling of the newspapers. He wore his hair long and was known to be flamboyant and often headstrong. He always brought the press with him, and the Battle of the Little Bighorn was no exception. He had political ambitions, and some say that his fatal overreach at the Bighorn might have been tied to those ambitions. A big win here might have put him in high places. He had also refused his commander, General Terry's offer to bring a Gatling gun on this campaign, saying that the heavy weaponry would only slow him down. The Gatling gun could fire 350 rounds per minute. However, in truth, it could only be effective from a position which could be defended long enough to bring it into action, and not particularly suited to mounted cavalry. For all the reasons just stated, and many more, Custer led his men into a situation in which 268 men would die. Five entire companies were annihilated, save for one trooper. That trooper, Frank Finkel, had signed up as Augustus Finkel, and he was present with Custer when the battle began. The total U.S. casualty count, including scouts, was 268 dead and 55 injured. In the 40-plus years between 1876 and the later 1920s, 70 so-called last-stand survivors told amused journalists and historians that they were the lone survivors of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Their stories fell into one of three predictable patterns. They disguised themselves as Indians by wrapping up in blankets. They hid inside a scooped-out horse or a scooped-out buffalo. They were rescued by the chief's daughter, who found them irresistible, and other assorted tales all found to be lacking when the time came for verification. Thanks to recent discoveries in the National Archives, the U.S. Census Bureau, and the records of the Columbia County Auditor's Office in Dayton, Washington, it is clear that Frank Finkel was what he claimed to be, the only known white survivor of the five companies that followed Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer to the banks of the Little Bighorn River in Montana Territory on June 25, 1876. We are bringing you an article in whole called Survivor Frank Finkel's Lasting Stand by John P. Koster, K-O-S-T-E-R, originally published by Wild West Magazine in 2007. We highly recommend this magazine for those of you who are friends of the Old West. Frank Finkel was born in January 1854 in Washington County, Ohio, the third son of Peter and Magdalena Finkel, German immigrants who owned a farm valued at 500 in the 1860 U.S. Census about the average for that time and place. The census taker spelled the name Finkel, F-I-N-K-L-E, in 1860, continuing the drift from the Germanic Finkel, F-I-N-C-K-E-L, to the Americanized Finkel that occurred through Frank's long life. Peter and Magdalena Finkel had six sons and a daughter, and while they spoke German at home, they sent their children to public school so that Frank Finkel grew up bilingual and fully literate in English. Peter Finkel died in 1868. Some of the older sons, including Frank, left a farm that was too small for six men and went to look for work. Down on his luck in Chicago in January of 1872, Frank Finkel did what a lot of young men did if they were too proud to beg and too dumb to steal. He enlisted. Joining the U.S. Army in 1872 was an admission of economic incompetence. If you were a native-born American, as Frank Finkel was, and a lot of young men signed up under assumed names... But Frank Finkel went to government one better. He assumed a name that could help him win prestige and promotions. He Germanized his name still further by calling himself August Finkel and put down his birthplace as Berlin, Prussia, and his occupation as clerk. The year before Finkel enlisted, 
Prussia had scored a double-edged victory over Napoleon and over the new Republic of France. Prussian soldiers were in greater demand than they had been in the days of Baron von Steuben, and Frank cashed in. Keeping his own birth date on January 23rd, he updated his age from 18 to 27 and was shortly telling gullible troopers of the 5th and later the 7th Cavalry, like his German-born buddy, Charles Windolf, that he had been an officer in the Prussian Army. Frank's imposing height, a shade over six feet, dark hair, gray eyes, and language skills helped him make sergeant within two years. By 1876, Finkel was the second sergeant of C Company, 7th Cavalry, commanded by Captain Tom Custer, a high morale unit whose soldiers, like the officers, were Custer partisans in the heavily polarized 7th Cavalry. When the soldiers were issued huge floppy Andrews hats that made them look like buccaneers, C Company was one of five companies where the men chipped in their own money to buy snappier hats from a Chicago retailer. The incident touched off fireworks when George Custer received a slap on the wrist from the designated post trader who warned him against shopping off post. Post traderships were a scandalous monopoly. Investors who never saw an army post hired the actual traders to deal with soldiers and random Indians and expected a 50% kickback. The soldiers at the frontier posts paid outrageously inflated prices for everything from whiskey to canned peaches, while supplies meant for the Indians simply disappeared. The one thing that the Indians could depend on was a steady flow of 1866 16-shot Henry repeating rifles, now rendered surplus because of the later model Winchester 1873, but still worth $75 on the day when the Indians received their cash annuities. Government policy kept the Indians hungry and better armed than the troopers sent to keep an eye on them, whose rifles were single-shot Springfields. Somehow this reminds me of today's situation with the government. I don't know why. The powder keg of graft blew up when the Sioux refused to sell the Black Hills in 1875, and many of the younger men left the agencies to join the Sitting Bull Sioux, Hunkpapas, and other so-called hostiles whom army officers called self-supporters. George Custer, who had gotten himself in trouble in Washington testifying about the potentially lethal post-trader swindle, had to do some fast talking to win back a role in the campaign to force the Sioux back to their agencies. The 7th Cavalry, including Tom Custer's C Company and 2nd Sergeant Frank Finkel, set out from Fort Abraham Lincoln in Dakota Territory as one of the three swords swung against the hostiles. George Custer refused three Gatling guns and a three-inch Rodman cannon for his column, as well as two companies of the 2nd Cavalry, his first Civil War outfit. He had few doubts. C Company, however, appeared less confident. Tom Custer was said to have been nervous before the battle, and his second-in-command, Lieutenant H.M. Harrington, was having recurrent nightmares about being tied to a tree and tortured by Indians. First Sergeant Edwin Bobo had bought a spare twenty-two caliber pistol by mail order, but forgot to bring it. As they drew near the Little Bighorn, C Company found a white man's scalp on a stick. Third Sergeant Jeremiah Finley, Irish-born, Civil War veteran, customer admirer, and Finkel buddy, stowed the scalp in his saddlebag, perhaps with the idea of giving it a decent burial. The men were jittery. The sight of the biggest Indian village they'd ever seen on June 25th did nothing to calm them down. C Company led the charge down to the Little Bighorn, such as it was. Finkel had trouble keeping up, probably because his height and weight imposed a heavy burden on his horse. He was the tallest enlisted man in the 7th Cavalry and one of the heaviest. I was riding close to Sergeant Finkel, Sergeant Daniel Kniep remembered in 1924, 
We were both close to Captain Tom Custer. Finkel hollered at me that he couldn't make it. His horse was giving out. I answered back, come on, Finkel, if you can. He dropped back a bit. If Sergeant Finkel had not dropped back a few minutes before, he would have got the orders to bring up the ammunition pack train, and I wouldn't be telling this story. Sergeant Kniep, the next to last man to see the Custer brothers alive, was sent back with orders to speed the pack mules and their 24,000 rounds of Springfield ammunition forward, leaving his buddy Finkel and his struggling horse to follow the Custer brothers down to the river. At least four C Company troopers dropped out with horse troubles, two with blown horses, two probably from cowardice. But Sergeant Finkel was with C Company when the company reached the stream. What happened then is the source of endless debate. The archaeology of Richard Allen Fox, Jr. suggests that George Custer stopped at the river and moved back into three defensive positions. C Company, with Tom Custer and Sergeant Finkel, was one of the two companies on what came to be called Calhoun Hill, overlooking the Hunkpapa village. The Indians had been sleeping off an all-night courtship dance the night before, but two green troopers rode into their village and started shooting, whatever moved, until they were unhorsed and killed. Major Marcus Reno hit the huge encampment on the other side. The unseen warriors exploded out of the teepees, armed with all those repeating rifles the post traders had sold them. The 7th Cavalry was outgunned 10 to 1 by the Indians they came to encircle. Finkel told reporters that the men were ordered to mount, and that as he was firing, an Indian bullet struck the butt of his Springfield carbine and slammed the bare steel barrel into his forehead. He was hit twice more, once in the leg, once in the side. A bullet slashed his horse's bridle, and another grazed his horse's flank, bolting into the oncoming Indians, along with those C Company men who hadn't already been killed or unhorsed. Finkel was carried through the angry Indians, charging uphill to protect their families, and down Calhoun Hill, beyond the Hunk Papa camp at the foot of the hill, and out onto the plains. One long sword escaped. Rain in the face told W. Kent Thomas in 1894. His pony ran off with him and went past our lodges at the foot of Calhoun Hill. I remembered hearing the squaws tell about it after the fight. Finkel wasn't the only one to get past the Indians momentarily. Lieutenant Harrington's body was never found, though a skeleton found years later and miles from Calhoun Hill might have been his. Corporal John Foley of C Company also broke through the cordon and was chased for miles by three teenage Indians armed only with bows. The three boys were out of arrows when Foley panicked and shot himself in the head with his own Colt 45. As many as eight men from C Company might have gotten through the Indians only to be ridden down and killed far from the battlefield. The pro-Custer Crow Indians found six skeletons with 7th Cavalry equipment years later and nobody from the Army ever bothered to go out and look. Trooper Nathan Short made it as far as the Rosebud River, more than 20 miles, before he and his horse both collapsed and died. Back inside the circle of desperation and death, Sergeant Finley had been unhorsed and wounded or killed. First Sergeant Bobo, his horse dead, walked back grimly toward Custer Hill for the last stand, while other, less courageous troopers panicked and frantically tried to escape or, according to the Indians, shot themselves. Bobo died in the so-called Keop sector. Tom Custer died with his brothers George and Boston, nephew Audie Reed, and their brother-in-law, Lieutenant James Calhoun. Finkel kept riding, dazed and hurting on his frantic sorrel. Somewhere in the next day and night, he crossed the three branches of Tullock's Creek, 
later reporting correctly, according to the 20th century topography of Dr. Charles Kuhlman, that the two southern branches were polluted with alkali, but the northernmost branch was fresh and sweet. Days after the disaster, Finkel reached the confluence of the Rosebud and Yellowstone Rivers and put his dying horse out of its misery with a single pistol shot to the head. Lieutenant Edward Godfrey reported the dead 7th Cavalry horse in 1892, but significantly didn't mention that it had been a C Company Sorrel or Light Bay until 1921 in an account unpublished until the 50s. The other four companies in the color-coded or blooded 7th Cavalry rode dark bays or gray horses down to the river. Back at the battlefield, Sergeant Kniep found Finley's body with a dozen arrows in it and found Finley's horse, Carlo. I looked over the dead and recognized here and there a buddy and a sergeant that I knew, he said. I recognized Sergeants Finkel and Finley. Sergeant Finley lay at his horse's head. He had 12 arrows to him. They had been lying there for two days in the sun, bloody and the wounded mutilated. The squaws would always, after taking the clothes off the men, shoot them full of arrows or chop them in the faces with tomahawks. Kniep never found Finkel's horse, and while he said he saw Finkel, he provided no plausible explanation of how he identified a butchered corpse after two days of 100-degree weather. Sergeant Charles Windolph, Finkel's best friend and a survivor of the fighting on Reno Hill, ventured back to the field of slaughter expressly to find Finkel's body and said he couldn't find it. Wandering the wilderness, Finkel discovered a white man cutting wood outside a shack in the middle of the uncharted territory. The man started at the sight of his uniform and ordered him away at gunpoint. Finkel collapsed, and the man relented and helped him to his feet. Inside the shack, another white man was sprawled on a crude bed, his face gaunt and pallid, clearly dying of tuberculosis. The two men, the healthier one was known only as Bill, took turns doctoring Finkel. They probed the wound in his leg with a pine splinter, then poured hot pitch on it. Finkel passed out. When he came to, he found that the bleeding had finally stopped and that the wound in his side, treated with bear grease, had also closed. For the next few weeks, Bill took care of Finkel, and Finkel helped Bill take care of his dying friend. The man finally died, and Finkel and Bill buried him under a simple marker. Then they split up. The men had told Finkel they were trappers, but more likely they were gunrunners or whiskey traders. He said later that he never saw any traps at the cabin. Perhaps leery of his status as a deserter, Custer had ordered some deserters shot in 1867, leading to his own court-martial conviction and a year's suspension. Finkel discovered that his entire company had been wiped out at the Little Bighorn. His own name appeared fourth from the bottom on the front page of the Bismarck Tribune. Now officially dead, he may have decided that he'd had enough of the Army. He later told his second wife that he tried to claim a discharge, but was unable to prove he'd been a soldier without two witnesses, which sounds like a cover-up for the fact that his successful escape could also be construed as desertion in the face of the enemy. He knocked around St. Louis for about a year working in the dairy business, then visited California and discovered Dayton, Washington. Finkel used his sparse money and his skills in carpentry and farming to speculate in land, building thriving farms, and then selling some of them and buying more vacant land. In 1886, near his birthday, he married Delia Rainwater, the daughter of Jacob Rainwater, one of the most prosperous farmers and civic leaders in Dayton. Finkel signed the marriage certificate book, Finkel, F-I-N-C-K-L-E, but the marriage license, Finkel, F-I-N-K-L-E. On his wedding night, 
Finkel's teenage bride asked about the old gunshot wound on his left side. He told her he'd been shot in a fight with some Indians. He didn't say where the fight took place. The slug eventually worked its way to the surface, and Frank had a surgeon take it out. Through the 1890s, Finkel continued to buy and sell farms, and his name gradually shifted from Finkel, F-I-N-K-L-E, to Finkel, F-I-N-K-E-L. The lot numbers and Delia's name indicate he was the same person. By 1920, Frank and Dealey had four children. Three lived to grow up, including Ben, who served several terms in the Idaho legislature, and they were moderately wealthy and respected citizens of Dayton. In April 1920, at a game of horseshoes, perhaps lubricated by beer, Frank unexpectedly went public with his status as a Custer survivor. Another farmer made some remarks about poor old Custer being ambushed by Indians. You don't know what the hell you're talking about, Frank said bluntly. How do you know so much about it, his crusty neighbor shot back. I was there. Somebody asked Frank to talk about the Battle of the Little Bighorn at the Dayton Kiwanis meeting, and after his neighbors hired a relief carpenter to finish a porch Frank was working on, he obliged. The article appeared in the April 8th issue of the local newspaper, 1920. Dayton, April 8th. Frank Finkel, a pioneer resident of Columbia County, was the chief speaker at the Thursday luncheon of the Dayton Kiwanis Club this week. He was eyewitness to the Custer Massacre and gave to the club the account of his thrilling escape and the circumstances that prevented the knowledge of his survival from reaching the government at the time. Congressman John W. Summers of Walla Walla was a guest at the luncheon, and he will make an effort to get government recognition of Mr. Finkel's story. In giving the account of the battle in which General Custer's command was pocketed by the Indian forces, Mr. Finkel said his horse became Kettler and bolted through the Indian lines, carrying him to a territory beyond the fighting. He had two serious bullet wounds, and after many days of wandering, he found a cabin in the wilderness where he was months recovering from his injuries. Nobody who knew him doubted he'd been there. The journalist obviously didn't understand when Finkel used the term skedaddled and wrote Kettler, but the Civil War slang term for a panicked flight brands Finkel as a veteran of the old army. But Finkel told one more whopper that compromised his story for future generations. Frank had joined the Army in 1872, a year after the Franco-Prussian War, and lived and worked in Dayton through the later 19th century, when the hard-working, music-loving Germans were the best-loved minority in America. World War I changed all that, and in 1920 the Germans were blamed for everything, from German measles to the influenza epidemic. Finkel originally said that his name was on the roster, and made no bones about it when the story first broke. He also claimed to have had papers that were lost in a house fire that provided further confirmation. Later, when somebody found August Finkel on the casualty list, his second wife appears to have fudged and denied that he'd ever been August Finkel, whose bogus birthplace was regarded as Berlin, Prussia. When his second wife attempted to pursue the pension he could have won, she claimed that he'd enlisted under the name Frank Hall. Frank Hall, five foot six, brown eyes, and 14 years older than Finkel, had deserted the 7th Cavalry in May of 1875, one year before the battle. Big mistake by the second wife. On June 25, 1921, the 45th anniversary of the battle was marked with ceremonies, and the newspapers, and the newspapers spoke to Frank Finkel again. Finkel told one reporter, The battle opened with an attack on an Indian village. General Custer led one set of troops, while Major Reno headed another. Custer's forces rode on to the attack until suddenly there was a thunder of yells as the Indians sprang from behind every bush and poured over the hilltops. 
Men and horses went down all around me. A bullet hit my rifle stock, and a splinter of steel started blood flowing between my eyes. My horse bolted and carried me, half-blinded, through the Indian lines. Then came a stinging sensation in my shoulder, and I lost consciousness, falling forward on my horse. When I came to, it was dark. Early next morning, I reached the mountains. For five days I rode, eating raw rabbits in fear of attracting the Indians if I built a fire. On the sixth day, I met some trappers and stayed with them until September. Delia Finkel died in August 1921 after a brief illness. Her husband, who survived her, was the only soldier who escaped the Custer Massacre, one obituary blandly noted. Frank Finkel's signature on the probate to Delia's will, written 49 years after he joined the Army in Chicago, is in the same hand script as his signature on the enlistment form. Ben Finkel, one of Frank and Delia's two surviving sons, had already moved to Idaho and was involved in state politics, which might have been another good reason to keep Berlin, Prussia, out of the public prints. In 1926, Frank Finkel married his second wife, Hermie, an Anglo-Saxon born in Canada who adored him and knew something about his status as a Custer survivor, but nothing about the old army or the Indians. Frank himself died at 76, wealthy and in no need of a pension, in August 1930. Hermie subsequently remarried and became Hermie Billmeyer, the wife of an apparently unsuccessful mom-and-pop grocer in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. With the onset of the Depression, Hermie needed that pension and perhaps also the collateral fame of being the widow of the only Custer survivor. For the next 20 years, until her own death in 1951, she relentlessly contacted every government official and Custer historian in the United States trying to establish a status that Frank and his neighbors in Dayton had taken for granted. Hermie, unfortunately, was locked into the story that Frank had enlisted under the name of Frank Hall and somewhere picked up the idea that he had enlisted at Council Bluffs, Iowa in 1874 and had served as a private and acting corporal. She tended to mess things up. One of the last newspaper stories, written a dozen years after Frank was dead, describes him playing dead the night after the Little Bighorn and then shooting an Indian who came to investigate, something Frank never said when he was alive. Ostensibly honest, Hermie purposefully denied that Finkel and Finkel, both spelled differently, were the same person. The tallest enlisted man in the 7th Cavalry at just over 6 feet tall, with light eyes and dark hair, as established by Hermie's own memories of Frank, and by the Finkel enlistment form from Chicago. She was obviously more afraid of Berlin, Prussia than he had been, since he appears to have mentioned his name on the 1876 casualty list quite freely before his son Ben got into politics in Idaho. Hermie also appears to have been jealous of the late Delia, obviously the true love of Frank Finkel's life, because Hermie claimed that Delia never knew anything about Frank's military service when in fact Delia, as a teenage bride, had seen the gunshot wound and had known for at least 18 months before her death that Frank was an acknowledged Little Bighorn survivor, as mentioned in her obituary. Hermie did find out that Sergeant Charles Windolph, who was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions on Reno Hill, remembered Finkel, went back to find his body, and couldn't locate it. An excellent confirmation. After Frank Windolph and Hermie were all dead, the last two in 1950 and 51, critics of the August Finkel story circulated reports that Frank Finkel had been offered the chance to meet Windolph and had backed out. But that wasn't true. Windolph didn't learn of Finkel's purported survival until long after the man was dead and said he would have loved to have met his old friend. He was a gallant soldier, Windolph said. 
Hermie probably never knew about the dead soil horse Godfrey found in August of 1876, color-keyed to C Company. Here was the one chance I knew of where a man may have escaped the fate of his comrades, Godfrey wrote in a letter not mailed until 1921 after Finkel went public and not published by E.A. Brennanstuhl until after Finkel, Hermie, and Windolf had all died. I have met several who claim to have escaped and have heard of many others, but never one who identified himself by this incident. Hermie certainly never knew that only C Company could have been a plausible source of survivors because the C Company breakup and breakout wasn't well documented before Richard Allen Fox's groundbreaking study of the Little Bighorn in the 1980s. Something of the kind had certainly been suggested by Rain in the Face in the 1894 interview, where he described a lone white survivor escaping past the Hunk Papa camp at the base of Calhoun Hill before the circle closed. We were better armed than the longswords, Rain in the Face said. Their guns wouldn't shoot but once. The thing, ejector, wouldn't throw out the empty cartridge shells. It was just like killing sheep. Some of them got on their knees and begged. We spared none. Instead of expanding from the rain in the face account, Hermie tried to peg Finkel to a white horse in a dubious Indian account and overlooked the factual escape account of rain in the face, a genuine and undoubted little bighorn warrior who even claimed he had later seen Finkel in Chicago. Finkel correctly insisted that his horse had been a roan, a C Company sorrel. He knew the terrain well enough to satisfy the compulsive topographer Charles Kuhlman, who calibrated distances with three different odometers. Finkel used Old Army slang correctly, had gunshot wounds and a military bearing, and was a perfect forensic match for a man known to have fought the Little Bighorn, who was supposedly buried there, but who was never properly identified among the dead. Above all, Finkel described the battle not as romanticized in the 1880s through the 1940s, but as described by the 7th Cavalry survivors like Captain Frederick Benteen and the Indians in the 1870s, and clinched by the cartridge case and slug analysis of Dr. Fox in the 1980s. A route where C Company broke up and fled, scattering corpses all over the landscape before most resistance in the other four companies collapsed. Hermie Finkel fooled the people who tried to follow Frank's trail with their name game, but Frank Finkel really was a Custer survivor. The world that justified expansion, shrugged off graft, glorified Custer, and defamed the Indians just wasn't ready for one. The credit for this story belongs entirely to John P. Koster, K-O-S-T-E-R, and was originally published in the June 2007 issue of Wild West Magazine. For more great articles, subscribe to Wild West Magazine today. John P. Koster, who with Robert Burnett wrote The Road to Wounded Knee in 1974, states that In High Lee contributed significant archival and editorial research to his story. For further reading, Archaeology, History, and Custer's Last Battle, by Richard Allen Fox, The Custer Myth by Colonel W.A. Graham, Custer in 76 by Kenneth Hoomer, and The Last Stand by Nathaniel Philbrick, P-H-I-L-B-R-I-C-K. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our website is at 1001storiespodcast.com. Join us with comments at Facebook, which has been pretty busy as of late, at Facebook slash 1001 Heroes. Email us at 1001storiespodcast.com. Email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. And most of all, share us with your friends. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. 